0: What was the first episode no one you're the first episode why does it say episode two because the first one was just us talking
1: oh okay it was a it was- new year special
0: yeah, yeah. Had,
2: yeah, and Jakub and, and Mati, and we were just bragging about our luck boxing. <laughs> yeah, about your training. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, well, thanks. I'm, I'm honored to be the first episode. This is cool.
0: We're really happy to have you as, as a first guest, for sure. We don't even know who's going to be the next one. We have an idea about the people that we want to have on, but let's see. Maybe this is going to be totally... Terrible, and we're just not going to release it.
2: Matty is very perfectionist when it comes to even like articles and months reviewing them before releasing them.
1: I know, oh. I know. Yeah. I've seen Matty's unpublished articles from three years ago.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and GMI. First question that I wanted to get the conversation going was that I think it was Fisky who sent me the uh, Crypto Land, Crypto Island video. And I know that, Steph, you've seen it too. And you made a great remark about crypto people being the last people you'd want to live with. And I totally agree. And you also mentioned to me in the past that you barely hang out with crypto people, trying to separate that crypto identity. And it made me think, and I also do not base my identity on crypto. So crypto is something I do, but for me, Mati does not equal this crypto dude. I told you that hanging out Elizabeth conferences end of last year it became exhausting after a while but we have fisky here and he seems like his crypto persona consumes a lot of his personality or maybe it's ios i don't know but it's a nice contrast so stefan a guy who doesn't want to engage with crypto people i don't want to say at all
2: whoa 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 whoa! whoa. <laughs>
0: no no no! you want to engage with crypto people but it's not like this consumes you and fisky guy who really indulges in this character that he created so it's a nice contrast. I know. Yeah. Maybe I said it wrong.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I have a prompting question for Fisky on this. Like, what do you think of moderation? What do you think of balance?
2: I was a huge fan of balancing everything in life. When I was playing poker, I was playing four hours a day and then I was offline and I was enjoying other stuff. But with crypto, I think it's different. I think Mati is right that it consumed me a bit. I'm trying to get back on track with my offline non-crypto life this year, but definitely last two years I was all in. and Mm -hmm. It was a lot of fun. I think if you want to be really best in something you kind of need to get consumed by it. You cannot just half-ass it. Uh, This is what I did with poker and I was good, but I I was nowhere near best and I wasn't even trying to be. With crypto uh, it's such an entertaining I don't want to say game because it's more than that but you know from gaming perspective I've never played any game that would be more entertaining on so many levels. Social level, competitive level, you know even the amount of money you can get out of it but that's not that important to me at this point of my life. Just the pure intellectual challenge combined with this huge uncertainty and ever-changing nature of it. When I speak with my friends who are non-crypto who are you know normies or no coiners or whatever i find it harder and harder to relate to them and things that they find interesting last year i met some of my traditional finance friends tartfi friends right and they were complaining about their bosses about how economy is dead and they have super good jobs it's not they struggle you know in some blue collar jobs and they are getting laid off not nothing like it but still they were pitching a lot and i was having the time of my life at least career wise so <laughs> i find it harder and harder to relate and what they find interesting Thing. It's very boring compared to the everyday drama that crypto offers. But after some point, it definitely can get unhealthy. You can lose track of what's important in life. I'm getting back on track with that, with my health and fitness goals and spending time outside of crypto. I think I talk too much. Maybe I would bounce the question back to you. I consider you one of the best in what you do in crypto, but you try to have this balance and you meet non-crypto people a lot. So what's your take?
1: Yeah, I think there's probably a big difference between what I say I try to do and what I actually End up doing. I think it's a perspective of just the knowledge of not wanting to get too deep into something becomes useful for adjusting and like making sure that you're able to maintain some perspective. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll try to touch on the point about the crypto island. So I think it's mostly a question of diversity of opinions. Like I found over time, more and more of the crypto people, while they claimed to be visionaries, contrarians, and like thinking differently, it seems like a lot of the people end up thinking the same. Sort of do mental gymnastics to like justify their bags in one direction or another and come up with you know, value systems and ways of seeing the world can be like quite divorced from reality. And I think that's like what you don't need. Community, IRL, society where you have to deal with stuff like who's going to pick up the garbage. You have to structure things such that people are like extremely willing to be altruist and help each other. There's just like some fundamentals, I think, of the way that the crypto community works right now that would be very difficult to actually live all together and spend time together. And like the reality of this party of affluence of everyone, you know, making it together is very difficult to translate to the real world. So I think while on on the one hand, 95 percent of my life is thinking, talking, working in crypto, I don't think it's like a healthy way for humans to live. And if it was the case for everyone, it would be very non-inclusive.
2: What's your biggest focus outside of crypto?
1: Sleeping? I, I, I don't know.
2: If you couldn't do crypto for one year now, what would you be doing most of your time? And money is no objective; It's not only a career question. I like to read.
1: So if I wasn't working, I would be reading. I would be trying to like expand my understanding of how the world works, things work, history, these kinds of things. Then I would find some other interesting problem to try to solve. I think biology has always fascinated me. That's a place that I could look into. The other one is fundamental physics and energy technologies. That's something that I might be interested to put my fingers in.
2: Non-crypto nerd stuff, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I think so.
0: It's interesting to think about cost of socialization. How much does your engaging with other people damages you? I wrote this article about if you're new to crypto, these are the accounts that you should follow, etc, etc. It's just a very simple way of how to understand or get up to speed with crypto but then you realize that after some time you spend in crypto and especially on crypto twitter you get too sort of zoomed in on things and the chatter of the day kind of clouds the vision and i wonder at what point this growth trajectory becomes diminishing or even has its cost on your ability to judge the visions of crypto or even individual projects in crypto um, right, that's like the,
1: the maxi narrative right like how, how do people become maxis yeah
0: i mean not necessarily becoming a maxi, I mean, you can still be agnostic, but just opportunistic is the opposite of uh, maximalism opportunism, or what is it? I don't think anyone of us here is maxi of any sort. Maybe you're Eve maxi, not in terms of your mindset, maybe in terms of your work engagement. But I think, you know, in general, I notice that a Twitter is limiting my ability to see things beyond what is discussed on Twitter. And I always think that the best ideas come from isolation. So from people who are not definitely or entirely on the pulse of the day. And it's that freedom of not being part of the current blabber that allows you to come up with the great thing. So I would even say that the biggest thing in crypto that in the future does not necessarily have to come from someone who is on crypto Twitter today. And that is something that you cannot as an investor. That's definitely frustrating because what's the formula to find that person? There is none, right? There's no process. How do we find this guy? I have an idea. You can start
1: paying people to delete their Twitter.
0: How would that be profitable? <laughs>
1: You, you force someone to delete their Twitter for a year, you know, you let them think through their project, remove some optionality, some distraction, and, you know, there's something good that comes out of it.
2: By the way, I got banned on Twitter for like 12 hours because I made a stupid joke with Inverse Bra and someone found it offensive and reported me. I could still read and send private messages, but I couldn't like, I couldn't retweet, I couldn't post and reply publicly for 12 hours. It was really good. I would like to have that option to be banned like this uh, <laughs> whenever I like I still could read I still could figure out what's going on if I wanted to and I still could DM people when I want to be in touch with them or there are some founders who are DM- DMing me but I couldn't do anything any action on, on like public Twitter space so that forced me to think less about what I'm going to reply or write and more about what other people are like writing and, and then I spend less time there as well so I think that was a great compromise how to consume Twitter but it's hard to force yourself to do it so this ban was actually a good thing and i kind of try to figure out how to offend someone somewhere else in a way that i will get banned for another 12 hours so let's see if i can find the balance between not being banned for too long but just long enough to have my peace twitter fatigue is real
1: it's very real and i've toyed with the idea of just deleting my twitter and just seeing what the crypto lifestyle without crypto twitter is like because it'd probably be way better as my thinking that's true. There's like a discovery phase, right, where, you know, you need to learn, you need to understand what the narratives are, and you need to understand who the narrative makers are. And certainly Twitter and is, is like a tool.
0: Especially you're a builder. And for you to looking at your peers to determine what's possible or what should be built, it's counterproductive, in my opinion. So if you've reached that level where you understand the basics, beyond basics, and you know the people, and you don't have to engage with them in this public square, then you'd be much better off. Because when you look at others, you sort of end up comp- competing. And I think that this is not the right way to go about building things. Do you do it? Do you go for it?
1: Maybe, maybe. I've certainly been like decreasing the amount of involvement that I put on Twitter. And I think the shitposting level has gone up, right? like the shitposting versus quality. So maybe it's just a matter of time until I pull the trigger on it. I think it's interesting, right? Like it was certainly higher ROI having fewer followers. I think, Fisky, you've talked about this a few times, right? Like yeah. the Twitter experience when you have a lot of followers, it degrades very quickly. And there's like not really much that you can do about it for some reason. And there's something nice about just screaming into the void, saying my ideas, and I feel like they were way meaning more meaningful. And now when like I'm screaming, there's always people responding. Like I can't actually put nuance or I can be mysterious anymore. Everything needs to be a joke and have a, a punchline.
2: Yeah definitely. I actually tried to decrease my follower count. I mean, it was a half joke, but someone suggested that I will post two tweets, one arguing for vaccines and the one arguing against vaccines, and then I will lose followers from both camps. But no, it didn't work. I still had a lot of discussion underneath of each of those, but not many people unfollowed. I kind of feel that at some point people just start creating alternative accounts, you know, alts, because even now, like, I don't even feel like posting anything really nuanced and some deep research because there will be a lot of stupid responses and people who demand alpha all the time and then you know they will kind of try to hold you accountable for your takes and i don't know what else it felt much easier to post a long thread about synthetics for example which was very controversial you know the design is very controversial uh, even today and i was posting a long form research and only people who were actually interested in the topic would engage now there are people there are followers that are interested in other things and they will just engage because you appear on their timeline and they don't have anything else to do it's tiresome i think you can curate it a bit you can like mute notifications from people. You don't follow you can start doing stuff like you can take your account private you can restrict who can answer to your tweets and stuff like that so i will probably try that first i will start playing with this more but ultimately i think creating out account and restarting the game, the social game from zero can be also interesting.
0: Also, if you use Twitter or social media more as an outlet for you to put things out there, it could be much more useful than to sort of absorb things. But that's more a utilitarian view on social media. Interesting thing is that, I mean, you two and sort of myself too, we've created this pseudo anonymous character on Twitter that carries on into other avenues. That would be maybe a question for you step why the ghost step what's the message behind it how did you come up with
1: this character yeah i wish i had like a good story behind it i i really don't i think it was coincidence more than anything else I think someone inspired by you all, actually. I don't, was I anonymous when I met you on Twitter? I, yes. I don't think I was. Yes,
0: yes, It was the ghost type. I remember interacting with you around Numerai, right? Or Erasure. That was the topic. I don't remember what exactly with Erasure or Numerai, but it was already the ghost type, but you had like
2: 300 followers or something. I remember there was this uh, request on Numerai uh, to create some uh, art, something artistic about right. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I created something really shitty, and then tried to persuade people to pay me out on that you know the the one who created the request, which was the ghosted, and he was kind of on the fence whether it's good enough to reward, but then I think my second attempt was actually successful
1: yeah, it was like gift of a garbage can like with like <laughs> some filters on top of it. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I think that was like early on in my anonymous online identity. And I just thought it was cool what you guys were doing to be these avatars on Twitter that are just ship posting. So, and I figured so. I would... I would join the fray. I remember there's this like just thread where we're calling each other out about some random stuff. And it's just like an alien talking to like this, you know, Maddie, what your red icon is. And then Fisky's like, yeah, ghost. And then
2: Fisky had like a completely different avatar back then, I think. Yeah. yeah. Was it in Hisoka already? I don't think so. I think it was something else back then, but something cartoonish as well. So what's the story behind your alien?
1: I found it on Google. Like, there's no story. But why Um,
2: Why not, I don't know, vlog or like, you know, anime character?
1: I don't know. You know, you just stumble on things on the internet and they speak to you and then you stick with it.
2: The alien became a
0: alchemist and that's pretty interesting. So you're adding bits to your character and it's becoming something completely new. And
1: it used to be, it used to be dancing on its own. And then somewhere along the path, it picked up some gear, it picked up some baggage. So now it's got some, some alchemist gear and some robot gear. You picked up um, some loot. Some loot, exactly. On my quest.
0: Okay, so we've established that you were hanging around Eraser the Razor on And maybe it, it would be interesting to explore the path that you had in crypto. Erasure probably wasn't the first thing, but it would be good to sort of explain how did you get into doing flashbots, focusing on MEV, because when we started talking that wasn't in the picture.
1: I if there's anything interesting I can share here that I haven't shared before. And the, the story goes, I showed up to a random conference in 2017 in upstate New York at Cornell University that where I wasn't supposed to be and I didn't have an invitation, but I just walked in and started asking questions and tried to understand what was going on. I met Phil Diane, a bunch of other researchers uh, from the EF and other places that were really working on the hardest problems in, in crypto at the time. The big topic was that we were like one year after the DAO hard fork, which like feels like an eternity ago. Like I haven't heard people talk about the DAO in a lifetime, But still back then, it was like, is this going to kill Ethereum? You know, Ethereum Classic was still around. And it was interesting just getting red-pilled extremely hard by all these people that, to me, seemed like complete OGs in the space but really had only been around because Ethereum had only been around for a few years to learn from them. And I just dove in and kept learning from there. So yeah, I showed up somewhere where I wasn't supposed to, asked questions, didn't understand the answers, but committed to try to figure out how to understand them. Learned how to code some solidity, got into the security side of smart contracts because I was just fascinated by the fact that there's no second barrier of defense. This developer that's writing the code is the only thing that's like securing hundreds of millions and it's not building of dollars and there's no recourse. feels like high stakes programming. It's impactful and just interesting to do. So I got into that side of things. And certainly there wasn't that many people writing smart contracts at that time. So it sort of became easy for me to start building a career uh, writing smart contracts.
0: I didn't really want to know how you got into crypto. I wanted to know more about why did you decide to obsess about MEV. What is so captivating about MEV? I don't know MEV is a weird
1: thing. Like I feel like I'm still learning about it every day. Like my understanding is in flux. When I started Flashbots, I think my understanding of MEV was along the lines of you want to provide a better user experience for people who are using applications like Uniswap or something else where you don't give the opportunity for a third party to violate the user's expectation. Maybe there's like ways to use the fact that you, use in this, that you work in a system where like information flows in these ways and the information flows themselves as value to create a better user experience, whether that is you know, give the impression of having zero gas fee when you you're transacting on on ethereum or others that's really the starting point i came at it from the like how can it be used to build better applications and the more i started building the more i got into it the more it became about somewhat populist narrative of showing strength to like power by from individuals from retail and end users who in many ways I think, end up always holding the bag or carrying the the cost of the financial infrastructure that's built on top of them. They sort of are systematically losing just from having some power differential with counterparty that they're interacting with. It seems to be like somewhat transitioning more towards that about finding some ways to resolve those power differentials in, in markets that make markets more efficient, lower barriers to entry, etc. And it's turning much closer to how to think about monopolies uh, how to think about competition, innovation, and how they all relate to each other.
0: So, is Flashbot going to be a monopoly? Are you building a monopoly?
1: I think the technology is like somewhat inevitable to like be monopolies, right? Like if you think about Ethereum, the way that Ethereum works, the Ethereum spec within the Ethereum ecosystem is a monopoly. Ethereum yellow paper that describes how like the EVM works is you know somewhat of a monopoly in, in DeFi. Many standards are sort of natural monopolies. Those are fine. I think those are like good monopolies to have. I think it becomes challenging when you have monopolies that extract rent those are the kinds of monopolies that that you want to avoid monopoly theory i know matty you're you're a big fan of monopolies is somewhat tricky right it's as much political as it is like economic based you know in reality when you're swinging the hammer of of antitrust you don't really know what the impact is on innovation on user outcome but what you're often responding to is some populist movement where there's some big Entity that's serving as a scapegoat for some like wrong that is in the world. Usually it's like some financial crisis or some other thing. It's easy to like point the finger at some big corporate giant and say, like, here's the source of the suffering. We need to make justice and break up this monopoly or whatever. So oftentimes that's how it actually gets expressed. But then at the same time, I'm a competition maximalist. Like, I do fundamentally think that competition in the long scales uh, derives more innovation more progress than lack of competition. So yeah, is Flashbots going to be a monopoly? I think some of the technologies that we build, roll out, the standards, etc., are going to be like adopted by the protocols, and I think that's a good thing. They're like technical innovations that, that are adopted because they're useful. From like, is the company going to be a, a monopoly that like extracts rents? Definitely not. I think that's like the furthest it could be from what we aim to build.
2: I want to ask about MEV. I remember when I first heard about it and started to dig deeper. I was really captivated by it. For me, it was a very interesting game. You know, when all that. Uh, about Dark Forest and what you can do deep down was interesting because it felt very competitive game but at the same point, after some time, when I saw all these galaxy brains piling into it, I knew that I cannot compete, so I basically stopped paying attention. And one more thing that kind of occurred to me was that it felt after some point that it's just another zero-sum game similar to intraday trading. And your point of view uh, so far, if I understood it correctly, was more around the lines of how to use these dynamics to make better user experience. But ultimately, most of what happens in space. Uh, in is just designing more efficient bots to kind of take advantage of it, to bribe miners. What do you think about the zero-sum aspect of MEV, or do you agree with it? And my other question would be, if you yourself run some bots to take advantage of MEV, if you profit from it on the side or within flashbots, or if you just solely focus on solving this theoretical problem?
1: I don't run bots. I have, in the past, somewhat like dog fooding, I guess, like getting to understand better what's like the user experience of someone who's who's trying to target MEV opportunities I haven't done any like sandwiching or anything like that but just like simple things like being the first to capture some like auction right something like that if there's like a new NFT that's dropping being like the first one to capture I've done that kind of one-off MEV it gets really messy when you think about like what is MEV right like just as a user trading on Uniswap you're participating in MEV you're creating value that can be extracted through MEV launching a token or like building pretty much any project you're like contributing to to mev i think there's like a specific subclass of actors that are these like highly competitive value extractive sort of zero-sum competition that targets opportunities and try to extract them but it is not like they are the outcome of mev they're like a, a side they're the outsprout Of the fact that MEV is a thing rather than what MEV is, is all about. You're asking about the competition, the fact that like more and more of these people are optimizing for, you know, minute things. I think in Ethereum land right now that the optimization is very much so around writing efficient smart contracts, going to like the low level of the assembly language and figuring out how you can save a few opcodes to be able to have some edge over the competition. I think it's. Not structurally healthy from the perspective of like, do we want to have all this brain power that's focused on this minute thing? But I do think that it's healthy from the perspective of like this is the most efficient way to take the value that's on the table without disrupting the rest of the network, and so it minimizes the impact that capturing that value has on all the other uh, users of uh, of the network. So I think that the social good still exists despite it the work being somewhat throwaway, minute work.
0: I would go back to the uh, statement on uh, competition. He said that you're a competition maximalist, but you believe that uh, competition creates innovation. I would disagree with it. I think that competition creating innovation is a myth because when you compete, you by definition end up just doing something what the other is doing, but trying to do it incrementally better. It's the romanticized idea of the struggle. But competition is about resources and innovation is about ideas. Ideas that look beyond resources or give a new meaning or new power. New utility. So I believe competition kills ideas therefore kills the greater innovation or invention. So I think we would disagree here.
1: Where do you think ideas come from? Like, So you say you prefer that people focus on ideas rather than competition. What, where does the source of ideas?
0: So that's the abstract thinking. I wouldn't call it randomness, but that's like the uh, dichotomy in or two sides of the artificial intelligence, right? You've got you think you the computers are getting smarter because you add compute, but they still cannot generate new ideas. They cannot explain why. This is where ideas come from just this isolated place that is abstract thinking i don't know where they come from but i'm sure that they do not come from competition maybe you're forced to think about you know how to up the other but you're definitely not coming from a totally different place so i'm not saying there aren't good things that
2: come from competition but I think they're great costs to competition. So there are like two analogies. One is, let's say, going to the moon, where, you know, Americans did it in the 60s. I think that huge part of why they did it was because they were competing with uh, Soviets during the space race. They wouldn't go there. They, I don't think they would throw so much resources because there was nothing there, right? It was not like, you know, there is some natural resource that you can harvest or anything. There are, but you you don't have the technology yet. But they still did it because they were competing with Soviets. But the other polar opposite to it, the first people who climbed Mount Everest, they weren't competing with anyone. They just wanted to be first. Maybe they were competing with themselves and with the mountain itself. So both sources of motivation kind of led to a similar result. I think maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle.
0: About the uh, the space program program. I think Nick Sabo wrote a very good article about, uh, I think it's called How to Succeed on the Frontier. And he was talking about this Chinese fleet of the Chinese empire back in 15th century or something, that it was just for show. It had no utility and it failed in comparison to commercial endeavors of Portuguese sailors. The space program or the space race wasn't a commercial endeavor that's why we got to the moon and what happened next where's the space travel these days today we have elon doing something that is commercial and it seems to be working perhaps what we were doing back then was just to show there was no commercial aspect to it. It was
2: just pure competition that led nowhere and had no meaningful results. It was political competition but you know Portuguese sailors were part of commercial competition or economic competition versus other sailors and other colonists. They were going there to bring back spices and other precious resources and its free market is competitive right. Maybe the nature of competition was different but it was still competition and all these European nations they were warring against each other. Rather than competing, which one will be first, which one will bring more wealth back home, whereas this Chinese Empire was a huge bureaucratic monopoly, and maybe that's why they didn't have as much urge to colonize. Yes,
0: you're correct. But Portuguese in the time of internal European struggle, when you had this Europe and that was the world, and you were competing for more land within Europe, Portuguese decided to go out. It wasn't a competition back then when they decided to venture beyond what is the known world or not known. World, but the sort of competitive landscape back then. So they decided to go and pursue the seas, the oceans, and after they did it, obviously, there were, there were the Italian city-states that were also sailing, but they weren't sailing that far. I would say, again, there was some internal competition and Portuguese came up with this idea, okay, like, okay, we're not going to mess with them because we're small anyway, so let's go there. So they did not compete when they started doing it. I mean, then Spanish and, and Dutch and others went there. Now who controls the seas controls the world, right? So that's the competition, but Stefan didn't say anything about
1: it. And, no, I love this topic. I, I want to stay on it. How would you apply like your frame of competition? competition? competition to like our current geopolitical realities where the US is politically how it's performing on like the global stage versus China perhaps even throw Russia into the
0: mix that's a tough one like I try not to follow too much of politics but from what we see or from what I've heard it seems like a an era of failing empire and you know China is the emerging power that competes and can compete because it has the resources. It doesn't seem to be the place where the ideas thrive. It was ideas coupled with the the classic liberalism that allowed civilizations to thrive. So currently, I don't see any idea leader. It used to be Silicon Valley. It's not. And we're running out of a geographic place because this idea seem to be like the best place for ideas to emerge seems to be a place where there's less coercion, much more freedom. In the US, you have freedom of speech to some extent, but you don't have freedom after speech. You get canceled, like fisky I don't know where I'm going with this, but I would say there is no specific geolocation that I see where the ideas emerge these days. But I see this cloud where you know, some ideas are being generated. I don't know how to put it in the context of geopolitics, maybe Fisky knows.
2: No, Jakub actually went back from california recently and he was utterly shocked by the amount of shit on the streets and crackheads everywhere and just we are watching it from afar and europe has many of its own problems but it kind of feels like us is a empire in a slow decline maybe topping i still remember these like old school investment advice that s&p 500 will grow nine percent a year on average like it did last hundred years which is basically just extrapolating the historical trend into the future but empires rise and fall and kind of feels that u.s either needs to reinvent itself during some conflict and scapegoating event or it will just be this like a huge roman empire that is mired in internal struggle like like it was during uh neron and other crazy uh, emperors maybe donald trump was a bit of a neuronic emperor i like this analogy despite the fact it's kind of weak because you know every empire is different but it kind of feels similar to me and I even wonder this trade that shorting S&P 500 and longing ETH or something other that's emerging new trend that's global and not emerging just from US could be a good multi-year macro trade. I'm not sure. I mean, this is something that uh, always happens over the decades, not uh, years. So it can be still premature to say that US is over or it's, uh, it's declining, but I wouldn't bet on it being the major top one or top three player in like next 100 to 200 years maybe it won't be that being said china it's huge of course and it has a lot of resources a lot of manpower technology is booming there as well but they grew too fast it was too sudden and it kind of feels that right now they will struggle a lot with some of their hidden issues that we may not even know about they can become at least short to midterm victim of their own success which was too fast and there are a lot of problems there and only the ones we know about are kind of big some ecological problems and over leverage Real estate market, and there are probably many more things hidden in uh, beneath the surface that we don't even learn about. It's such a different environment, and not many information leak outside. And if they do, they are kind of obscured. I would definitely bet on China rather than the U.S. if I had to choose. But I kind of feel that it's not clear what will happen next, and if there will be any major superpower at all that is like really global. Maybe not. The chance of some smaller nations making their own stand via I don't know enabling new technologies like crypto and deregulating them probably it's the best time for like smaller nations to build something on their own without too much outside influence uh, in the history of, of the modern world that would be my hot take without claiming any expertise in geopolitics stefan you are from u.s right i from canada but
0: no a panarchist. so maybe he could explain that why is he a panarchist? yeah we can get it
1: to it I think it's actually a good segue from the from the previous conversation. One thing that fascinates me and I love to understand better is social economical system. All the games that we are playing are these where it's A mix of scarce resources with people, and then they try to figure out how to allocate those resources and live their life according to some like set of rules, coordinate around these resources. City states are this, DAOs are this, anything that we do, and any way that we coordinate our instantiations of this. Panarchy, it's two things it's both a political philosophy as well as a framework for analyzing socioeconomical systems. I think both framing of the term panarchy are underutilized in thinking. I think touching on the geopolitical thing, panarchy mindset tells me that it's natural for there to be bundling and unbundling of processes and economic structures. Uh, Institutions, you can say. Institutions, that's right. During the industrial age, the advent of the new technology, it sort of disrupted a lot of the ways that society was structured previously, right? Like capture the means of production, power to the people, like humanism, all sort of strives around that same time. You know, at the time it was a lot of chaos. You have a lot of fractionalization free energy that gets released and sort of a all out war, all out competition to try to figure. out what's the best way to capture these new resources that are all of a sudden available. But eventually there's some winner, there's some process, there's some structure that is more efficient than the others at capturing these resources. And I think, you know, under this analogy, there'll be liberal democracy. Liberal democracy and states have been more efficient and more successful at coordinating humans around scarce resources in like post-industrial age. And so they've sort of won. Now... The question is, do these structures survive a, a shock? Over time, structures become more and more rigid, and the way that the resources are allocated, the way that things are managed becomes more and more inflexible, um, which also means more vulnerable to the systemic shock. And perhaps the information age, perhaps the internet, is such a such a shock that that triggers fundamental change in the way that we think about what is the optimal way f- for humans to coordinate around resources. The panarchy sort of framework is that this is all a cycle. You have the cycle of you have some shock that causes the incumbent monopolies or incumbent structures to dissipate, to fall over, to break down. And then you have chaos. You have free energy where you have the most amount of independent, individual competing parties who all fight for these resources. Over time, they start to consolidate. They start to find efficiencies. And there's a winner that emerges and becomes the new monopoly or power in, in the new paradigm this cycle i think is probably what we're observing you know my guess would be that we'll see more small countries emerge and compete and be like beacons of hope for civilization and we'll also see large countries fragment and we'll see like more separatist movements of subsets of countries that want to split off from the whole and compete on a smaller localism perspective
0: you were talking about resources, but capturing resources. I sense a very political realism or utilitarianism here, but it's funny that you didn't talk about capturing minds because minds rule supreme to resources. And you said that liberal capitalism was good in capturing resources. It was good with capturing minds rather than resources that were then put into use after the minds were captured or enabled to generate ideas.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think the minds need power. They need fuel to run, right? like. Mind is only as good as the freedom it has from constraints, you know, the need to feed itself to have a roof over its head, freeing the mind, I guess is like a winning strategy. But uh, perhaps it also requires control of the resources to be able to do so.
2: Yeah, and kind of observe many of these crypto natives slash who I know for a fact they have eight digits plus already earned in like last two to three years, their situation improved financially, but in their heads, they are still still captivated by this need to capture more resources and protect what they already have very anxiously. They are rich in the sheets, but not in the streets. They still feel like they need to compete in this zero-sum, scarcity-driven environment. So their minds aren't really free to pursue something other than just playing the PL game. So is this something similar to what you talk about? Our minds still need sugar and we need like hordes of sugar and other resources to continue. And even if we have too much of them already to sustain us, for lifetime or near lifetime we still feel like we should competing for more
1: i think the model mostly applies at a macro scale when you talk about interpersonal systems intrapersonal just like within someone's own life the ability to adapt and change maybe it's like a different frame of thinking make more sense it does like prompt a question to me which is like Of all these DGENs who went from nothing to having substantial capital, let's say like new minted millionaires from this last cycle, what percentage of these will still be millionaires in five years, do you think? 90% of them will still be or people will just waste their money and they'll go back to where they were before?
2: So it's like with the lottery? lottery winners no i don't think it's similar to lottery i think majority of those that are here this cycle and like past cycle let's say usually you need like the saying is you need two cycles to make it one to learn one to really make it those who made it this way i think they are actually fine but the ones that just bought random nfts and suddenly it's a huge thing and then they sell it and start thinking that they are godlike investor i think many of these will lose inevitably especially if they don't know the rules of proper bankroll management and this is a poker term divide your capital to not risk everything in one basket and just manage it in a way that is not correlated these guys will probably struggle or they will have huge drawdowns which are very hard for your psychic when you are already in the mindset that i already made it that to sustain myself and my family and suddenly you get a hit and then you start making mistakes and i know this from poker i know these people from poker they won a big tournament because i mean they were playing well but they were also very lucky you need to be lucky to win a big tournament even if you are a pro and they basically they quit their job one of them actually went into his boss office and he did something stupid amateur what. now I think he beat in his trash can in the office or something like that and just told him to go fuck himself or something and he's quitting his job and then in three months he was broke and he had to go for unemployment support and there are stories like this in poker I think there are many stories like this in crypto but I wouldn't say it's it's 90% of people I think many of those because it wasn't just for most of them it wasn't just one lucky hit but multiple decisions they had to make and needed to orient themselves in the weeds so if they are not risking too much on like very stupid small illiquid things even when they already like kind of made it i think they won't go back to rags but most of them will definitely see huge drawdowns but i think that's that's not even that bad right if you see huge drawdowns but you already know you made it once and it was your own effort it wasn't just winning a lottery it wasn't just pure luck Uh, then you do you have this sliver of confidence you can do it again i was reading about the rich people who lost the most money last year Year, and I was expecting it to be a mostly businessmen who deal with stuff that got affected by COVID, and there were people like that inside of that list. But most of them were actually Chinese billionaires who got wrecked by Chinese government changing the rules. There was one guy who went from 10 billion net worth to like 1 billion net worth in one year, which is minus 90%. And it was because he had his online education business, but the Chinese government basically regulated it so hard that right now you cannot provide online education for profit service it has to be non-profit so this guy's billion dollar business just went you know down drain and i mean he's still a billionaire he still has like something like one billion he probably took away somehow but he went minus 90 percent in one year which is even harsher than crypto you need to be like fully allocated in a lot of illiquid stuff in crypto or just be all in one project to see like minus 90 percent. this is a real world business that was booming for multiple years and had many customers and i mean there are drawdowns and huge drawdowns in the real world as well crypto is not so special about this It just random people could do it from their bedrooms without interacting with outside world too much apart from a couple of DJs on twitter that's different
0: i just wanted to say that it's a lot about the what i see is a lot about positive expected value right this poker terminology somehow made it into crypto and it makes you think about the optionality and how much optionality is good for the collective whether there's a trade-off for optionality on the individual level versus the aggregate just too much optionality makes it harder for us to come up with and Important things in crypto.
1: The biggest thing I'm curious about is how many of the builders are going to stick around. Now, I really liked you know, all the, the, the meme within the builder community is like the bear markets are great. It's when you have the most amount of cohesion. It's when like everyone's just out there working on the tech and there's the most amount of collaboration. And then during the bull market, you know, it's huge amounts of distraction. I think a lot of the builders end up leaving and they, they get distracted. They go work on something else. They, you know, start to enjoy life a bit more. They don't have the same passion and grind that they had when when they started and they, they were learning. So I'm super curious to see how many builders stick around. You know, there's always a new crop that comes up right? and they, they take over and usually it's always more people. At the macro scale, I think the industry will be fine and there'll be sufficient builders. It'll just be a completely new set of people.
0: I think the graph from the uh, recent uh, report from Electric Capital showing the amount of web-free developers, quote unquote, it showed that there was a decline after 2018 and then it peaked again, I think. Now we're at the highest that's not necessarily a great sign because what I see these days is huge seed rounds that are not in like lower millions but they're in tens of millions of dollars and it makes you wonder if that is necessarily good or it's just trying to throw more resources at the same thing without some breakthroughs. That's concerning because who is the most remarkable builder of the the bear market, the last bear market? The poster boy for this is Hayden from Uniswap. Funny thing, I'm actually running I about this currently, I for the fact know that Gnosis had XYK AMM built early 2017. They coded it, but they never took it to market. And then a year and something after that, this random guy coded this thing to life. It wasn't even his idea. But Gnosis, they had so much resources. Already 2017, it was a force. It had a huge ICO. They managed their treasury well. They had a lot of money, a lot of greatest brightest minds. And this random guy coded a thing that they built before, you, you know, without even knowing it. And this was one of the biggest innovation of, of that time that led to DeFi summer etc. But Gnosis could have done it. They had it, but they had too much optionality, too many resources to be obsessed with and, uh, and build something else, whether it's a prediction market or Gnosis, say, for a bunch of other products they work Don't get me wrong. Gnosis is a powerhouse. They're one of the brightest minds in the space. Just look at it. They had it before. They had the resources, but it was this guy without no prior knowledge that did it. So it's not necessarily about the amount of developers and about the resources. It's about one guy doing it.
1: Yeah. You think they were just distracted? They couldn't focus. They couldn't prioritize. They couldn't pick one thing. Is is that what you think is the, the reason? Or they picked the wrong thing?
0: I don't know. I'm not saying that they picked the wrong thing. Like they're out there building, you know, different things, cow swap, whatever. They're just uh, contributing, right? Doing a lot of research. So I'm not saying they did something wrong. I'm just trying to point out that, you know, sometimes it's about the urgency and the commitment to execute on this one particular thing, rather than having overwhelming amount of resources at your disposal. Because in that respect, it's it's optionality. I mean, definitely serendipity played a role there, but it's not about resources, I think. This could be just, I could cherry-picked an example, but I think there's something to it. And even if the amount of builders would be less in the space after, say, there would be a terrible bear market, I don't think it would be necessarily bad. I think that the more resources, the more chatter about price, etc., the more people focus on one thing. I've written about it, right? It's a convergence of, of ideas, like, we're just doing this one thing, so everyone building NFT marketplaces these days, or just DeFi protocols, and when there's not that much chatter about one thing, people go and explore. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah, we should just cancel all of crypto Twitter. Let everyone explore
0: yeah maybe this prolonged bull market wasn't that great maybe it could do more damage than
2: good who knows fisky doesn't agree (laughs) everything is as it should be i think like twitter is great i mean it has a lot of downfalls but i think it's net positive not only for me or like z prime capital personally but also to the space in general because all the vitriol and all the Zooming into the drama of the day and focusing on bullshit, it still it provides very large and pretty open and transparent discussion forum for crypto natives to fight it out in debates and conversations and posts and bond together socially, which I think is also important. If we accept the thesis that crypto is a lot about forming these digital tribes aligned around some digital values... Or digital valuable assets I think that something like Twitter is is necessary for it to work in like a semi-healthy and semi-efficient way and if there was no t- Twitter we would have to invent it that being said I kind of feel that we should try to create something new better than Twitter where we can own our social graph where we cannot get banned easily or at least cancelled in a way that takes a couple of years of work and social connections away from you that's actually pretty high risk for people who may their living by being connected to other clusters online
0: you would agree that it goes out to moderation i'm not saying twitter is all bad but it goes down back to the question that stefan posed originally
2: moderation right everything in life of course but i think it's naturally being moderated by not on individual level some people will always overdo it but on collective level there are people who are already zoning out of twitter like stefan said he is tweeting less he's shit posting a bit more and engaging in serious conversation a bit less so i think there is this like natural life cycle of a twitter addict there are new people coming in who are still learning the ropes there are these digents there are some people who will still be addicted to it even like 10 years but i think naturally it will reach some sort of equilibrium where it all makes sense and some people get Some people are addicted, but some people learn to start to fade it more in a way or start to pay less attention to it. I kind of feel that trying to preach moderation or be this high horse guy, um, it doesn't make any sense. People will learn themselves what is important to them. I think without Twitter, crypto would be much worse. Even the progress would be slower because now we exchange ideas pretty fast and we connect to people via Twitter that we wouldn't be able to connect to otherwise. And it's not only about connecting to people. but also about this social track record or reputation, which is much harder to track via other media. When you had only like private chats with people and not this public forum, you would probably have harder time realizing who is who, who is in it for the tech, who is dumping on followers. I actually, thanks to Twitter, I have a pretty good picture of who to trust, who kind of avoid or who is a counter signal. If I was chatting with these people, maybe only via DMs without seeing their public takes, and public discourse with other people, maybe I wouldn't have such a full picture of it. I think, yeah, you are right. Of course, moderation in everything, but people will naturally in aggregate moderate themselves. You you don't need to be the force that tries to ban Twitter or shut it down or anything.
0: I would want to ask, what do you think, Steph, is the next chapter for crypto or what you would want it to be? Those are two very different
1: things. I mean, another crypto trend that I'm seeing that I think is pretty exciting, I would say. It's certainly like shaking a lot of things up is these like worthless governance token being sort of a thing of the past protocols needing to like ruthlessly aim for generating cash flows otherwise just like getting forked and by like a team that is happy to worth be ruthless about it it seems like it's going to have quite an impact on the way that teams think about building and how they think about what structures to build under do you build in the u.s do you like build abroad do you build only anon there'll be like a shakeup, i think in the way that teams approach this i'm fairly bearish on anyone that's building things in in the us it seems like there's going to be like a huge wave of, of regulatory action that's going to take hold and it will be like increasingly tricky for those teams to build anything where do i want things to go
0: I really don't know. Let me put it this way to make it easier for you. Say that you completed your work with Flashbot. Say that now everything would be done and, and you wouldn't have to worry about it. You've solved the problem. You would still want to do something, right? And, and it would be today. And it would be something from scratch and it would be probably crypto. What would it be that you would be building?
1: Yeah, that's where my mind went to as well. I think I'm so currently focused on on what I'm I'm building um, that it makes it hard to like look beyond uh, into what, what are the, the new opportunities. I always... Always get back to the same premise if I'm trying to figure out what to what to build, which is what are users begging for right now that they're not they're not getting? What is the experiences or like the tools that, that they wish they had to be able to have a better experience using all this technology and then just build those. And then even if they're not like a business, even if they don't have a token, it doesn't really matter. Eventually there's something really interesting and powerful, some some new innovation that, that gets discovered from from that process. You know, it doesn't give you the answer, but that's how I think about how to, how to direct my work.
0: It's very interesting because you're focused. You're very much focused on what you're doing. It's thinking about utilities, etc., and being as a utility of what you're building, right? A very sort of structured thing, very analytical. But then again, sometimes uh, I remember this, I don't want to say catchphrase, but this word that you use and that's aesthetics. It's the opposite of the utility. And I came across a quote that made me think of you and it goes like this. Put usefulness first, and you lose it. Put beauty first, and you'll do what will be useful forever. So it's basically saying nothing is more useful than useless. And that's very interesting to me. What would you say about this?
1: I like that you're keeping me accountable to the things I've said in the past. I'm just trying to make it up as I go here. And then here comes Mati, who's like, yeah, well, you said this and now it means... You know, I, uh, fundamentally, I, I guess we're all, we're all on the journey, right? And I'm as susceptible as anyone else to like go in one direction and then overcorrect to go back in the other. I do think that there's extreme value to aesthetics. And in particular, I think aesthetics is something that people feel like strong meaning to much more like meaning and like natural connection to than any like explained meme that we can have like financial freedom. It's a great meme and like people will connect to it, but they won't fundamentally connect to it the same way as they would to aesthetics. So I think there's like some some truth just from that that emerges that like if you optimize for aesthetics, you optimize for truth, you optimize for scalable things. It's very abstract and it's very difficult to like what How does do you- maximizing for aesthetics mean?
2: How do you optimize for aesthetics in crypto or specifically on what you are doing?
1: Um, I think the decision of like, creating an Anon account is an aesthetic decision. In many ways, more than a utilitarian one, I think the way of presenting a project, not refusing ruthlessly to do like paid advertising and these kinds of things, is as much an aesthetic decision as it is like branding decision. The way that you speak about narratives and the way that you sort of present memes as conversation topics is all aesthetic decisions. So I, I think it comes up, you know, a lot. It, it comes up in. All kinds of decisions. It's an intuitive thing, I guess, and like people will disagree on like w- what is the aesthetically right thing to do. Yeah, it comes up everywhere.
0: Yeah, maybe that's the answer to the question about where do ideas come from. Maybe they come from aesthetics. Wouldn't that be beautiful?
1: I'll say yes. Just uh, you know, so, <laughs> so we can tie it up nicely here.
2: I want to ask you, Stefan. Uh, I don't see any. A hot take about Olympus on your Twitter, and these days everybody needs to have one.
1: Oh, this, is, this is a sensitive topic.
2: Let As me well explain said. why it's
0: sensitive just very briefly. I sent it to Stefan like a year ago when we were doing the seed round in Olympus. I was like, what's so remarkable about it? Like, what do you see? I was like, I'm not going to explain it. That's the origin of our shared Olympus story.
1: I think Olympus is like by far the worst trade I've ever done, and so it's a sore topic. Um, at the same time, like I think it's fascinating, and I've learned a ton from the way that it worked. And actually, seeing a lot of other projects have similar mechanics. And seeing them implement it gives, I think, an interesting way to apply like where we see these this type of bootstrapping model go. I think there's a lot of projects that looked at Ohm and said, wow, what a great success. They've been able to bootstrap a huge amount by having some focal point on price and having some like mechanism to be able to bootstrap price. But ultimately, they'll need to figure out like when's the stopping point? Where when do you like call the gig off? When when's the Ponzi, you know over and what do you fall back on is this like fallback actually built already or is it still like a hope of having some fundamentals some cash flows or some other structure that's able to support a certain price level there'll be a lot of other projects that that have a similar downfall but there's still like a lesson learned for teams that are looking to bootstrap and like where really they are constrained by attention they have good fundamentals and price and it and social awareness is is missing
2: to that point I mean not uh, it's not about Olympus anymore but once you tweeted that inflation is one of the greatest technologies or something along those lines and I understand what you mean by that but people probably don't so can you explain it and does it have to do with anything with Olympus at all or with crypto in general I think
1: I'm high conviction when when I say things and like I I back it up all the projects I'm involved in have Extremely high inflation. I think I see the reason I do is to test the limit of my theory. I want to figure out is this always true and like true to what level? What are the trade offs in this like new design space? What impact does it have? I can try to like explain why the rationale for, for that justification just within the context of crypto project. Let's ignore real world monetary policy and instead just stick to communities and like shared ownership. Inflation provides a vehicle for transferring value from early. Uh, members and early contributors to later arrivals and allows for this ecosystem to continue bringing on new talent, new members who have credible way to make it. It's a machine for continuously attracting uh, new blood, if you will. A lot of the projects in crypto start extremely small, tiny community, and then you're with an idea and you start building it and then you get discovered. And then like overnight, the project goes 10,000 X. And then all of a sudden, everyone that was super early are mass- massive bag holders and they either decide to stick around and hold all of their positions or they they offload. And I think inflation in many ways forces that decision, right? It says you can hold on to your bags, but it's just going to be like continually diluted away. And so you have to like make a conscious decision, like force the huge whales to exit and allow for, for some stability to come back to the system, like allow some new people to come in, get excited about the project.
2: But there are many other aspects to this for your thesis to work because a lot of projects have inflation meaning there are new tokens being constantly created and diluting those that don't do anything but then again it's like usually in most projects i've seen it's super easy to do something that protects you from dilution usually just taking and maybe running a validator so in layer one networks at least there is a risk of slashing so you need to put some solid infrastructure in place and kind of monitor it so there is already work you need to do to be protected from dilution and earn fees of of course. But there are many DeFi projects where there is like big inflation, but you only need to stake the token to earn the inflation rewards yourself and then you are protected. So it doesn't really solve this problem of ossification, of ownership. Uh, so you still maintain fixed percentage of the supply despite the fact that there is a big nominal inflation going on. What are the projects that do it differently or do, do you have any examples of projects that don't have this mechanics that actually protects you from inflation pretty easily as early bank holders?
1: I holders? I think there's one model of inflation which is interesting and it's one of perpetual growth i think you're right people have sort of ticked in that you can use inflation to incentivize certain behavior but they don't necessarily model like how much of that behavior they want they just like assume like more is good and so it gets to the point where it's like way beyond what the system like actually needs and then it's waste the inflation is i see it somewhat as like a, a tool that needs to be invested you invest in coordinating people to do a certain activity and the need of like those activity changes over time I don't know that there are any projects out there that have done this extremely successfully. You can build pretty much anything using this framework and the the crazy thing about it is you can fund anything without really having the need for like venture capital or like sophisticated investors that you like negotiate with because the capital that you have to invest comes from the network value right from the the inflation. Uh, inflated supply. So there's this tricky thing where the more discretion you have over how the inflation is used, like the more risky it also is for the project, and like somewhat like the less the more control that the whoever controls the inflation has over the fate of the project, and that might like make people uncomfortable, particularly in our microcosm and, and the way that DAOs are thought of today. But at the same time, it, it provides a lot of flexibility for adapting to new realities and, and directing the the capital in, in new ways, using it for funding new experiments, using it for funding public good, using it for investing in in other teams, other projects, these are all ways to use inflation in in a way that if you have a fundamental thesis for how it returns more value to the core project, it can have a a very potent and powerful uh, impact.
0: I want to say that the reason that I liked you or we liked you early on when you had your 300 followers and just chosen your dancing alien as an avatar was that I noticed that you had a trade of asking good questions and not being, you know, too quick to answer. I generally notice that you prefer questions to answers and being more comfortable asking, and I think that's a great trait for a builder to have. I like the aesthetics of it. That's why I think this was a really good conversation that I really enjoyed.
1: Oh, well, thank you. And uh, I hope it's not the last. I think there's so many other topics that that we can cover and so I always super enjoyed talking with you guys.
2: Any last words? Any last piece of advice? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's pretty somber. No last words. Yeah, see see you all in the in the metaverse.